Well, <laughs> that was good. Thank you for that. Um, turn to First Peter. First time I've said that. Uh, first Sunday of the year, first snow of the year. Uh, we'll start our first chapter, first verse of our of uh, the new, brand new book that we're studying. Um, thanks for coming and starting things right. Uh, we're going to be in First Peter, and we'll give you all extra time as I can't find it because you haven't turned there in a while. It's near all those first, second, third Johns. They just clutter things up there at the end, you know, and uh, then they're not big. There we go. First Peter, that's the one. Let's read the word of the Lord, starting verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus, we thank you for these words. We thank you that they are living and active and able to pierce us. Uh, we thank you uh, for your friend, Peter, uh, who you saved by your grace and entrusted with this message that's been delivered to us. We thank you for the, the nature of the salvation that we enjoy. You've, you've saved us to so great a salvation. Uh, you've given us such a good covenant to be a part of. Your abundant mercy has been shown to us. You're kind to us. You're compassionate to us. And, and even being able to receive from your word, this passage is evidence of your grace and your mercy. And so we praise you and bless you and thank you and ask you to come and be alive in our presence today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, it's impossible to to read through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's, you can't make it through those books and not see the prominent place that is given to this guy, Peter. Okay, First word, first chapter, first verse, it starts out, Peter. And we all say, I know him, um, because he's not one of the side characters. He's kind of a, he's kind of a big deal. Uh, among the disciples, it's clear that Peter is the leader. If you missed last week's sermon, I'd suggest you go and listen to it because knowing the man who wrote this will change how you receive it. Last week, we saw that Peter had a unique closeness with Jesus. He had a unique boldness with Jesus that led to being rebuked by Jesus more and failing Jesus more than any other disciple. Jesus preached from Peter's boat. Jesus lived in Peter's house over and over again in the gospel accounts, instead of saying the disciples or the 12, the gospel writers will say Peter and the 12, or Peter and the rest of the disciples. When the names of the disciples are given after Jesus calls them in Matthew 10, 20, or sorry, 10 verse 2, it says the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. It says he's first. But, but he is what we would call the first among equals. And Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, introduces himself as an apostle, not 
the apostle or the leader of the apostles, which would have been true in its own way, but he just, he just says, Peter, an apostle. I'm one of the apostles. Now, after Peter gives his all-important confession in Matthew 16, he says Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus tells him that he's called Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he gives Peter this authority to bind and loose on earth and heaven, and this authority is, is referenced or referred to as, as keys. He gives Peter the keys to the kingdom. But two chapters later, in Matthew 18, verse 18, he gives the same authority of binding and loosing to the other apostles. So Peter wasn't the only one who received this authority, but he is first. He's first, but among equals. This authority, I believe, is expressed in the message the apostles preached. What they spoke when they spoke the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel is established in heaven. It is more real than anything you have seen or touched. It is the most authoritative message. It is the most uh, well-established message. It is firm and it is solid. And Peter and the apostles are the ones whose pens and tongues would declare this adamantine truth, this firm, solid, unshakable reality. And to them was given this authority. This authority then is expressed in the message the apostles preached, not in some sort of uh, arbitrary kind of like, you know, okay, you're in and you're out, or I'm going to make up a new rule today, and I'm Peter, so I get to do that. Like, we don't see that kind of thing happen. He even says prophecy doesn't come from private interpretation. It's just that through the apostles, God granted his authority to be expressed and distributed in the preaching of the gospel. So we have this apostolic authority of those 12 men. We have it. It stands today firm and solid in the form of the message of the gospel communicated to us in the words of Scripture. Our faith is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's how it's described. By the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, we receive this message. We hold to an apostolic faith, which means that Jesus sent men, inspired their messages, and that that message has, against all odds, been passed down generation to generation all the way to the present. In a very real way, this chain began with Peter, who introduces himself as an apostle, a sent one, one who's been sent and authorized with this message. When Peter introduces himself as an apostle, there's a proper humility. He doesn't say the apostle, you know, or Peter, you know who I am. You know, he doesn't start like that. But there's also a proper authority, because not just everyone is a capital A apostle. Uh, he's not claiming a crown that doesn't belong to him or trying to give, you know, decrees that can only come from his throne or something like that. But it's also clear that the letter is not just, you know, a Christmas card. It's, it's not just going to be a letter that's full of suggestions with trite religious truisms or something. It is an apostolic letter written with apostolic authority, which means that the gospel contained in this letter is established as truest of true and should be received just as if it came straight from heaven. These are the words that came from the man Jesus Christ himself entrusted with the building of the church, the feeding of the sheep, and the comforting of the brethren. We are that church that Peter began construction on. We are the sheep that are still hungry, still fed from the same green pastures, and Peter is our brother from whom we can still receive comfort. His words do extend to us. This, this is our book, but of course it wasn't originally written to us. It was, had a much more narrow audience. 
Uh, Peter had not yet heard of North Fork, California. I'm sure he has by now. But he wrote, instead, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You know, those places. All of these are territories or regions in modern-day Turkey. Uh, the first and last places mentioned, Pontus and Bithynia, are actually right there next to each other. One is a kind of a region within the other, actually. The borders are real, you know, perforated lines. Um, but starting with Pontus, you can go in kind of a, kind of a clockwise shape around these ci cities that Peter mentions in this order, and you end up right where you started. Um, this letter was probably going to be circulated in this order, and it could have been that Peter himself planted the churches in these order on a missionary trip like we read you know, the Apostle Paul um, going on. Uh, these are territories mostly in the north and east of Turkey, whereas Paul stayed mostly in the south and west of Turkey. Um, he certainly spent a lot of time in, in what we call Turkey now in his travels, but, but you read in the book of Acts that Paul was prevented by the Holy Spirit from going too far north or too far east. In Acts 16, verse 6, I'll read it to you. It says, They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to, uh, to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Bithynia and Asia are both receiving this letter from Peter. Paul tried to go there and couldn't. The Lord directed him elsewhere. Uh, both of these places, Paul was not allowed to go. Do you, you ever wonder why? Well, one reason, the simple reason, God had somewhere else for Paul to be. Uh, but as you read Paul's testimony in his life, you read that he had this God-given desire to preach where no one had preached before so as not to build on another man's foundation. Well, guess what? It seems likely that Peter, and maybe some of Peter's friends, were already laying those foundations in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Paul was surely not the only apostle going on missionary journeys. His route and Peter's would have overlapped kind of in the middle in parts of Asia and Galatia, uh, but those areas were big enough for them to both preach the gospel and not run into each other. They had different mission fields. So it's possible that these are areas where Peter himself planted churches. And he's writing now, some years later, probably from Rome, to encourage these churches back in Turkey. He's encouraging these children, and he calls them by two names or titles. He gives them two titles, pilgrims, verse 1, and elect, verse 2. What are pilgrims? Um, might be helpful to turn to Hebrews 11 now. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us uh, at great length, or describes for us really, what pilgrims are like. And this word pilgrim is used in chapter 11. Hebrews 11, you know it, it's the hall of faith. It's the list of all these Old Testament saints who lived and died by faith. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 33, just to describe who these people are, you know, what they're like. It says, through faith, uh, sub they subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Uh, but, flip side, but also it's the list of those who were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. These kinds of people, the Bible calls pilgrims. Actually, it's in the middle of Hebrews 11. If you glance back at verse 13 and 14, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises 
but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That earth that isn't worthy of them, by the way. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. So what are pilgrims? Pilgrims are the ones who confess that they are strangers here on earth, but they are seeking a homeland. Our trajectory is heavenward. This isn't our home. Sometimes it's translated exiles. Um, You you might use the word refugee. Uh, Back in verse 9 of the same chapter, it says that Abraham waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. These are the saints to whom Peter is writing. They're the people in, in this tradition of holy homelessness. It's those men and women of faith living in this world as those who are just passing through, who are looking forward to the next, leaving blessings in their wake, but not staying too long. Now, he uses this phrase that was well-known in the Jewish community, pilgrims of the dispersion. This word is is diaspora, which generally refers to the Jewish community living outside of the promised land, outside of Israel. But it becomes clear in the book of 1 Peter that he's not writing to Jews only. In fact, we know his story, right? He was there when the centurion comes to faith. The whole point of most of these letters is that the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been crushed. There is one church, there's one new family that God has created. So he's not just talking to Jews. He's writing to Christians very clearly. And the Christian church at this early stage even is made up of Jews and Gentiles. But he uses this Jewish phrase, And now he's applying it. This is a phrase that was intended for Jewish people who were living outside God's promised land. And now he's applying it to God's people, both Jew and Gentile. Because like the Israelites who were exiles living in foreign lands, so we as Christians are living in a world that is not and cannot be our true home. We are looking forward to a better city whose builder and maker is God. It's a city with foundations, which implies that the one we live in doesn't. This world, it's, on, it's built on sand. <laughs> um, but there is a better world coming, or a world that's going to be remade. We know how to be exiles. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about exiles. Jeremiah tells the Jewish exiles heading towards Babylon, where they're going to spend a generation, to seek the peace of the city of your exile. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. So we have a responsibility to better the world that we live in, but we do so with our hearts set on a better home. We are pilgrims, but that is not our only identity. And it's certainly not the most permanent identity, as in heaven, you won't be a sojourner anymore. You'll be at home. We're also called elect, the chosen, who have been sanctified, who have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Verse 2 says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Peter knows about the Trinity. Don't miss this, please. Right there at the beginning of the letter, he lays out the believer's identity, and he lets them know very clearly God chose you for this. He has had his eye on you. You are no accident. He picked you. He has deliberately delivered a salvation to you that has your name on it. But he knows how this happens, too. He mentions every member of the Trinity here at the beginning of the letter in the earliest generations of the church, he he knows that the believer's identity is inextricably tied to the work of the triune God. Don't believe 
that all the complicated theology of the church came later in history. Don't believe the lie that says, well, the, the complicated things, that's so much clutter that came afterwards. You know, it's like barnacles on a ship, you know. It was, but in the early days, the church was pure and clear, and everyone only had church in living rooms the way God intended. And it was just clean as anything, and all these extra things. The first generation of the church was not just about, you know, feeding the poor and trying not to get eaten by lions in the Colosseum. Like, they're, they had the richness and the fullness of this deepest theology right from the beginning. And they needed to, because knowing this about God has a direct bearing on your life, your identity, your calling, and your destiny. And Peter mentions the Trinity, which may be the most top-shelf bit of theology that any of us are asked to contemplate. And Peter starts the letter with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, yes, in this life, on this earth, you are pilgrims, but you're more than that. You are a people who have a dynamic, active, living relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father has known you from before the foundations of the world. He has chosen you, elected you in holiness, for holiness. This choosing, it says, was in sanctification. That means making something holy or consecrating something for special use. And the use is seen here in this verse too. It's for obedience. He's chosen you to do his will. And in this, he saved you from two other wills, yours and Satan's. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15 says that he saved us so that we would no longer live for ourselves. Right? So we're saved from just doing our will, from just serving our own wants, perceived needs, the desires of our flesh. In 2 Timothy 2.26, it describes some who had left the faith who were taken captive by Satan to do his will. Yes, the devil has a wonderful plan for your life. And we're no longer slaves like that. We're not slaves of sin, subject to our weakest desires, just serving the flesh. We're not slaves of Satan in rebellion against God. We have blood on us that speaks of a covenant with the living God and allows us now to do his will and serve him instead of being slaves to the lesser master, who's really a tyrant. This is being accomplished in your life by every member of the Godhead. The Father has loved you. The Son has bled for you. The Spirit has been given to you, is in you now, bearing witness with your spirit that you are children of God and transforming your life from glory to glory in holiness. Now, it says that these saints were, were saved for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, sprinkling, that's a fun word. I like that. You think of like sprinkles on a donut or something? Not talking about that. Um, after Israel had been delivered from Egypt and rescued from their slavery, they were sprinkled. Uh, it's in Exodus chapter 24. The people are gathered together. Moses takes blood from a sacrifice. Half of it he sprinkles on the altar, and then he reads the law to the people, and the rest of the blood he sprinkles on the people. And while he did that, he said some words that should strike you as awfully familiar he said, this is the blood of the covenant. That was Moses' line in that moment. This is the blood of the covenant. Familiar concept here. The redeemed, rescued, former slaves are sprinkled by a new leader who says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is what Jesus has given us in communion. Living, We are now identified as God's people living in a covenant with him. Peter is addressing people who are committed now to doing the will of the one who has saved them because they've been drawn in 
to a loving blood covenant with their Savior. You, Christian, were known before the foundation of the earth, chosen by God to do his will and to be in a covenant relationship with him, a marriage relationship with him, sealed by blood. So to you, loved ones, may grace and peace be multiplied, which is the last bit of verse 2. These are common greetings used uh, all throughout the letters in the New Testament. Um, One of these words is the common Greek greeting. Uh, The other is the common Hebrew greeting, both of which find their full true meaning in Christ, who saves us by his grace and gives us both peace with God and the peace of God that passes understanding. May these blessings of grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, the idea of multiplied grace, that's not something you see in a lot of Paul's letters. This is somewhat unique to Peter. And he'll talk later about the manifold grace of God, the many-faceted grace of God. And he seems to be more aware, maybe, than the other authors of Scripture of this constantly various, multifaceted grace that God has for his people, that there's always a new angle to it. There's always a new side, and it's showing up in a new and different ways. He's aware of this, of this uh, grace and peace that continues to come from the one who sits on the throne of God. There are varied graces. There are manifold graces. There are blessings from God that are unlike other blessings from God. He is eternally creative. There's peace for every season, and it's a different variety and strength of grace and peace that he offers you now than the peace that he will offer you later. You will experience graces this year as you walk with the Lord that you have not received before. Um, And it's just because God is the God who keeps the sun rising every morning and he does new things. That's why you will receive grace. His, His mercies are new every morning. Today's mercies are layered on top of yesterday's mercies and his grace and peace are being multiplied to you. That's the greeting. That's his, hi, friends. He's writing to you, pilgrims, exiles, sojourners, chosen ones who have a hope of a better country. Now, next in this letter is this introduction, uh, which is very similar to the way Paul starts his letters. And I would suggest it's the way you should probably start every morning. I'm happy now to be able to start our year this way because the way he starts the letter is with praise. We enter his courts with praise. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter begins with praise that is centered and focused around the gospel. Blessed be God. We sing, blessed be your name. We sing, bless the Lord, O my soul. Because for those of us whom this manifold grace and multiplied multiplied peace have come and had their effect, the only sensible response is to praise. If God has saved you, then you worship him. And Peter tells us of this goodness of God that inspires praise. God's goodness is most clearly seen in the gospel. It's the resurrection of Jesus, which results in our new birth. This new life, Peter calls a living hope. And all of this has been done for us according to his abundant mercy. Let's take this one piece at a time. The word mercy. I have had the wrong concept about mercy, I think, my whole life, which is really, you know, quite a confession for me to offer to you since I named one of my kids this word. (laughs) Should have done a word study. It's actually better. It's better than I could have ever imagined. Um, But I, 
I've been looking at this concept of mercy, and we, we distinguish mercy from grace, and by we I mean I've taught you this, so I guess I apologize for the shallowness, um, but we distinguish sometimes mercy from grace by saying something like this, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, and mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve right? I've said that, you've heard it, you've said it. That may be a start, but it is only the barest thin beginning. Mercy is so much more rich than that. In fact, after looking into this, I don't think I can in good conscience describe mercy that way anymore. I don't think that's the way scripture describes mercy. Elsewhere in scripture, this word is, tr- is used many times, and it's translated as having compassion on. Um, We sing about loving kindness. That's the Old Testament kind of principle for this word, loving kindness. In the story of the Good Samaritan, this word is used to describe the Samaritan caring for the man who is robbed and abused and attacked. He rescues him, cares for him, and paid for his recovery out of his own account. This, the Bible calls mercy. Now, with the definitions that I shared, just shared, we would call that grace, right? Because he's giving him things that he didn't deserve. I guess the mercy was just that he like maybe he didn't kick him because the guy cheated him at cards or something like that. But that's not part of the story. The story is he showed compassion and kindness on someone who was suffering greatly. When the word mercy was translated into Latin, the word misericordia was used, and it's, it's a compound of the words misery and heart. And it describes the giving of a sympathetic heart to the one who is in misery. That's mercy. God, our Father, he's not just saying like, oh, I deserve, you deserve this thing, and I'm just going to put that aside. He does that, and we are right to say he is so merciful in not giving us the consequences of our sins because of the blood of Christ. That's true, but again, it's the surface. God's heart is moved at our suffering, and he is moved to alleviate that suffering out of the goodness and compassion of his heart. God has given his heart to the miserable. He has blessed us, saved us, caused us to be born again to a living hope because his heart broke for us in our misery. Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, led captivity captive, ascended into heaven as one whose heart felt the great weight of your sin and mine, your shame and mine, and grieved for us in our dire need. He mourned for our lostness and was moved to alleviate our sufferings by entering into ultimate suffering himself. That's mercy. Mercy is the visceral, heart-wrenching compassion that compels a Savior to save. And his mercy is abundant. He's really good at saving. It's, It's the It's the compassion that compels a Savior to save, even if it means crucifixion. Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. That's the mercy of God. It was according to this abundant mercy that he caused us to be begotten again, born again. We're familiar with this kind of language, right? John chapter 3. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, John 3, verse 3, says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is not so much, I mean, it is a requirement, certainly, for salvation, but it's just the definition of salvation. 
To be born again is to be saved. He makes you new. That's what the salvation is. He, he adopts you into his family. He makes you uh, born again into his family. That is your salvation. God has caused you, Christian, to be born again. Peter says it was God who has begotten us again. If he, God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has begotten us, if you learn nothing else from the long genealogies, it's that fathers beget sons, right? So you know what you are. You are a son of a good father, a daughter of a good father. If he, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has begotten us, and that means he's our father too. It means that we have a wonderful royal inheritance, and with this new birth, we have a new life and a new destiny, and we are moving towards this new and living hope. Our hope is alive in at least at least two ways. I'm sure many more, but I, I picked two. Uh, a living hope can be distinguished from, say, a dead hope um, in, in a couple of ways. One, it's a momentum. Living things grow. They progress. They develop. A dead hope is stagnant, and it's more, more how people use or misuse the word hope, right? It's kind of a shrug and a wish. It's like, well, I hope, hope this works out. Okay, that's not a living hope. A born-again Christian's hope is dynamic, in that, it produces in us virtues and spiritual maturity that we desire. We talked about this during Advent, right? The one who has the hope of seeing Jesus purifies himself. A living hope is productive and effective. And as we've been born again to this living hope, the life that we've been born into is one of active hope, expectations in motion, anticipation lived out in faithfulness. So it's a living hope. But there's another way, a more simple way, maybe more Sunday school way, that our hope is alive. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, this is the, uh, the New American Standard Bible. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Is he alive? Yes and amen. Our hope is a living hope because our hope is Jesus. It's so tied up in the person and work of Jesus, it's impossible to pull it off of him and have it still exist. Our hope is so connected with what Jesus has done, it is right to say he is our hope. Our hope is alive because our hope is Jesus. We've been born again to a living hope. Well, we've been born again, we know, to the life of Christ. The life of Christ is being formed in us. We've been born again as people who are now united to Christ and being united to him, body and soul. We're united to him in his death, in baptism, right? His burial. We're united to him in his resurrection. We're raised to newness of life. We are the people who say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's a living hope. That's Jesus, our living hope. All of this is ours because God has had compassion, abundant mercy on us. And all of this has been made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, by saying this is through the resurrection, it's implied that the death and burial are part of that. Death is a prerequisite for resurrection. You don't get one without the other. But in, in the, the death of Christ, the old man, the sin nature, the flesh, these things are put to death on the cross. But the goal is not just to make us nothing. It's not just the removal of filth. The goal of God is to make all things new. The resurrection makes this promise, this guarantee that God is both willing and able to raise the dead, to reverse the curse, and to restore humanity 
into a right relationship with him. We are raised to newness of life. Now, verse 4 continues this kind of run-on sentence that's just all the rage with all the apostles. They love it, man. And it tells us what else we have been born again to. We've been born to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In the same way that we can look at our living hope as alive because of its quality and alive because of its personality, because Jesus Christ himself is our hope, we can look at our inheritance really the same way our incorruptible, undefiled inheritance that is waiting for us in heaven, is that anything apart from Christ, the sum of all spiritual things? We, we can't look past the blessings and not see the blesser himself. We know that the Lord himself is our inheritance. This goes all the way back to the book of Numbers with the original priesthood. God tells Aaron, the first high priest, you shall have no inheritance in the land nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. Peter is telling us we belong to a better priesthood, but we have the same inheritance they did, God himself. The psalmist picks up this idea of inheritance. Uh, again, Psalm 16, verse 5, you, O Lord, are the portion of my inheritance. And Peter says we've been born again to an inheritance. Well, what's that? Does it come in shiny boxes? Like, is it? It's Jesus. You know it's Jesus. He is our inheritance, and we get him in his fullness, which is what Paul prays, right? May you be filled with all the fullness of God. We read in Ephesians also that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance, as a kind of, kind of down payment. And that spirit who is in us cries out with our spirits, Abba, Father. He bears witness with our spirits that we are the Lord's and he is ours. Once again, we have been born again, not just to impersonal blessings or a wish with a shrug, but we have been born again to share in the life of Christ, to be united to him, to receive things from him. It's more, we receive things from him, but it's more true and more glorious to realize we receive him, and in that we receive everything else. When we receive Christ, we receive, we receive everything else. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? With him is important. We receive Christ, and with that reception, we receive all things. We inherit Christ, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, and he has given us his body and his blood, and we are his body we inherit Christ through whom and for whom all things exist. The way Peter talks about this inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, will not pass away, it's, it's all describing things as what they're not, you know? And this is what we're left with sometimes when we describe God himself. We don't have the words to say what he's really like. We understand finite things, limited things. We know God's not that, so we say he's infinite, we just tack on the prefix and say, well, he's not like any of this. We know that things change. We see things, uh, you know, grow and, and, and then become corrupt and dissolve. We, we have this idea of permanence and faithfulness, but we've never seen it apart from God. So we have this word immutable, and that's just for him. And similarly, we, we, we're familiar with the world of corruptibility that decays, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But our inheritance in heaven is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away. 
We can say the same things about God himself, and we must. He's incorruptible, cannot sin, cannot deny himself, does not break his promises. He is undefiled, holy, pure, completely perfect in every way. Does not fade away. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and has promised to be with you even to the end of the age. In him there is no shadow of doubt. There may be some slight variations in the meaning of these three things, incorruptible, undefiled, doesn't change. And we could split hairs and say why, how they're different to each other. I don't think that's Peter's point in saying that it's incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away. He, he's saying basically the same thing three times in order to hit that nail home. You see this in the Psalms and other books of poetry, the same thing said three different ways to show, not to show variation, but to emphasize the one main point. And the main point is that God has saved you to himself. He has reserved treasures for you in heaven, and his name is treasure. All those treasures are in him. He is the inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you. Now, right out of the gate, Peter is lifting the eyes of his readers to heaven. He is elevating their thinking, showing them that the things worthy of their thought are things, the things that they ought to fix their eyes on are in heaven, and they're not things of the earth. Let me remind you of how personal this is for Peter. We talked about this last week, of course, but Peter was a man who had been rebuked for thinking about the things of man and not the things of God, the things of earth and not the things of heaven. When he tried to turn Jesus away from the cross in Matthew 16, he was called out for that. But now, as Christ has raised up Peter with him in the resurrection, the born-again Peter knows the danger of not having your mind fixed on heavenly things. He also knows the joy that he doesn't want to miss anyone to miss out on, on having his eyes fixed on Jesus. Peter knows what it felt like to literally drown in the presence of Jesus because his eyes left Christ and became preoccupied with waves. So now as he's writing to Christians and he's telling them of the good things they ought to think about, things that are better than the things of earth, he doesn't start out by rebuking them or, you know, for thinking of earthly things, but he's inviting them, rather, to look with him at the glorious treasures of heaven that are for them in Christ who loves them. One of the reasons we need scripture and why we need to read and meditate on passages just like this one is because we, like Peter, have eyes that drift downward. Our gaze tends to be earthly because that's the stuff we're made of. And then we read of this kind of salvation and the Spirit of God uses these passages to lift our hearts upward, heavenward, to where our inheritance is, to where our true life is hidden with Christ in God. It is this heavenward gaze that, that plays such a big role in Peter's failings and his redemption and restoration, and it's what we call faith. Right, the Tozer line that faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. It's a good line. I like it. I use it all the time. So Peter has drawn our attention, the gaze of our soul, to this saving God who has had abundant mercy on us, has felt our pain and our dire straits, and Peter is, is telling us that fixing our eyes on this Savior is a divinely powerful and effective means of salvation. Look to Jesus. We, whose inheritance is heavenly, are those who, verse 5, are kept by the power of God through faith, as the gaze of the soul on the saving God, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The power of God that has saved us and will save us is present with us through faith. It says we are kept by the power of God. There's no question about that. He is the one who saves. He is the one who preserves us in our saved state. 
All the glory goes to the all-powerful God who has mercy on the undeserving. Our part in this equation is faith. We look to the Son of God for our salvation. Just as the Israelites looked up to the serpent that Moses placed on that pole, we are kept by the power of God through faith. This is the work that God requires of us, believe in his Son. This is what you're called to, look to Jesus. Place him ever before your eyes. For now you look on him with the eyes of faith. You look on him having, having not seen. But this salvation that we are kept in by the power of God will be revealed in the last time. It's a living hope who we will see with our own eyes. A living hope is Jesus. Our inheritance is Jesus. The salvation that's mentioned here in this last verse, that salvation is Jesus. We talk about salvation like it's a mechanism, and that's not totally wrong. We have to make sense of how this whole thing works, right? But it must be more personal and more relational than just the means to an end. Our hope is Jesus, and our salvation is Jesus. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. He is my salvation. It's impossible to separate the idea of salvation from the person of Christ. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. When Jesus is dedicated in the temple as a baby, the Holy Family encounters an old man named Simeon, and it says, He took him up in his arms and blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. It was Jesus. The Savior saves us to himself. He saves us through himself. He is not, he is the action. He's the living word that saves. He grants us an inheritance, which is nothing less than his very presence. He promises us a sure and steadfast hope that is nothing other than the promise of himself having so great a salvation. Let us pray to him. Blessed be God. We praise you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit. You have called us to a better city whose builder and maker is you. You have chosen us to, for yourself, to yourself, in holiness, consecrating us to your own special use. We praise you for the beauty of our salvation and the power of the resurrection and the hope of your presence. We worship you in the light of these truths, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please stand. And let this prayer count as the blessing for your potluck meal. Sound good? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.